What's going on everyone? Choosing the correct oil can be difficult sometimes. Switching to Camco products can eliminate those pains. Camco products utilize only the highest quality of oils. You can get the same OEM quality products with the added value of a longer oil life with a superior additive package. They also offer a seal conditioner additive that will prolong the life of the shaft seal and O-rings. Did you know that Camco 717 series is top-off compatible? That's right, no need to waste oil when switching oils. Camco 717 series oil has even more benefits. You can reduce your yearly consumption of oil. You can gain more system capacity with far less oil migrating throughout piping and evaporators. You'll also reduce the kilowatt usage of your compressor since Camco 717 series has twice the lubricity of traditional naphthenic oils. Camco products are tested, proven, and trusted to outperform many other oils for over 35 years. They offer quicker lead times, better pricing, and same-day shipping to support the industry. Reach out to your local distributor and let Camco solve your lubrication needs. Tell them that Josh from Inside the Pipe sent you. Welcome to Inside the Pipe, the industrial refrigeration podcast that covers the work, lifestyle, and hazards of a career in natural refrigeration where we love the smell of ammonia and hate the smell of sulfur. Here's your host, Joshua Reese. What is going on, everyone? Welcome to Inside the Pipe. I appreciate you joining, listening. Um, my, uh, my listeners are growing daily, man. It's not like it's, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. I think that this is something that people um, are getting in shit i forgot to pause my phone my bad um you know i think that this is something that people are getting interested in um and i i just want to put something out there i like i'm always open to feedback and, and i think that it's very important to be that way right because if i want i want the podcast to grow um i i need some feedback you you have to have some fails you have to fail to learn how the right way to do it is right so i want this to be successful um so you know in order to do that i i need some feedback from you guys and just and just let me know if you're gonna get anywhere um in life you have to be able to accept stuff like that you have to actually be able to want to go get feedback like some people ask for feedback and then when they get it they still get offended which you may you know what I mean? Especially if you're emotionally reactive, even if you know going into it, you may, you know, still get emotional when someone tells you something that you're very guarded about. That's that's just how our egos work. It's something that if you have a problem with that, we, you know, we all need to stop. Like I recognize that I have a problem with that. So, you know, stopping is on the agenda, you know, and the first step is recognizing that, that kind of stuff. Um... What happened this last week? This has been like an insane week. Like I've had, like I've had a lot of things, a lot of fires to put out. And, you know, so, sometimes that stuff is just caused by people that are just doing reactive maintenance. So, you know, if you're, if you're only fixing things that are breaking down you're like already you know behind you've got to get to the point to where you yeah i mean you're not going to catch everything but you can catch a lot 
you know, temperatures start going up, oil pressure temperature, I mean, oil pressure goes up, oil pressure or oil temperature starts going up. Like we can, we can diagnose these things earlier. There are some things that just go out, like right, a pressure sensor will go out on a compressor. You can't, you can't control that. And you'll probably, I mean, but chances are you probably could have found it. You know, I, the, at least the rule of thumb that I've always went, went by is that, you if if you're getting like five degrees outside of or or five increments outside of whatever you've got to calibrate so let's just say you've got you're reading 20 psi and it and it's you know the zero is where it it was originally at and then you got to at you know minus the five off of there so if you're getting five a five degree span outside of that just change it out you know pressure or rtd you know instead of calibrating them um, the, those sensors seem to like get out of whack, especially when they've been calibrated a bunch. Like, you know, I, I, the, I've, I've got somebody that recently reached out to me and is, he, he didn't know that his suction pressure RT or transducer was like nine pounds off. So this dude was actually running in a vacuum, um, you know, and so that's just wasted kilowatts. That's just something that you want to, you know, keep in mind. Calib- I think calibrating um, temperature sensors and calibrating uh, transducers are like some of the best things you can do to save kilowatts because they're if they're, even if they're a little bit off and that's what's actually controlling the 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 pressure in the the house pressure. You need to you know that it, just calibrating that can actually end up saving you quite a bit of money. Um, so it's always good to do that. All right, so this next guest that we have was just on not too long ago. It's Brian Chapin. Um, I have an enormous amount of respect for Brian. He he's just a smart dude. You know, he, he's he he knows his stuff when it comes to PSM, um, and and I'm glad that I have him as a resource to reach out. So let's get into it. Brian, what's going on, man? Well, same day, man. It just feels like every day just runs into the next, right? It's uh, it's Friday according to the calendar. Yeah, it is, especially when you're doing administrative stuff and refrigeration, like this, the same thing I'm doing. It's it never ends. You just you just put one fire out and and you're just looking for the next one to come in. We're dealing with a lot of uh, new build startups, so it's uh, a different level of frenzy. Yeah, how does that look like? Like what what what's your level of involvement with that? Uh, well, that depends on whether I handle it or my colleague Scott handles it. Uh, but basically, it feels like you spend several months slow rolling everything, and then all of a sudden your schedule gets compressed and you have a week and you have to do several months worth of things in a week. That, that's what it feels like. It's yeah, that's a, that's a constant. Uh, so are you, so when, when y'all have like these new, you're talking about like new buildings that, that you're starting up, like new construction. Yes, yeah. Well, it, you know, we work under a, a general contractor. They, they're designing the distribution center or, or food plant or whatever that is. And then we handle the refrigeration and we as an RCE. Um, and then our job is usually to create the PSM program drafts around that. Oh, wow. Uh, and to help manage the startup and pre-startup safety review process. Obviously, you know, the, the skilled technicians and construction workers do the actual real work. We just sort of document yeah. it and, and, and make sure that we provide the client with a defensible case that things are built within uh, the appropriate rag again. Yeah. 
man, I, I could, I, I've never done that. At least not from the, like I've been a part of like PSM revamping and stuff like that. But like the, the just the idea of, of having to create all of that for a new com- customer, just even just thinking about it right now would be overwhelming. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. You know, I experienced it on the end user side when, when I was a PSM coordinator out there in the real world. Uh, and you got impressions of what you thought it would be like working for a contractor. And they're they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's far more frenzied than you'd imagine. Uh, I, I sort of think of it like the, the pros, like the, anything you can think of that you're good at. Um, as you scale up, you know, you start beating your friends at, say, billiards. You start beating your friends at pool. Um, and you think, well, I'm pretty good. And then you meet like some guy that's really, really good. And you're like, oh, that's, that's amazing. And you skill up to where you can beat them. And then maybe you go to like a state tournament and you find out, my God, you're not even in the top 1% of this. But <laughs> um, so you want to find out if you're good at PSM, by God, work your way into the position where you're supporting a contractor because you will see so many fascinating things. Yeah. I mean, I could probably, so I have that, that I, when I got into this position now, now I'm an account manager. So essentially I'm a glorified sales guy. Um, but I also am considered, uh, the, the FSM, which is the, uh, field service. I don't know, field service supervisor FS or manager or something like that. So I, I have seen a whole different side of, the refrigeration business that I've never, that I've even had complaints about in the past, but I just never knew the hurdles that you need, that you had to jump through getting on this side. So that I, I get a lot of that, like, as far as like, you know, there, there is, it, it, it is very humbling, um, especially when you're having weeks, like what you just talked about, where you have to cram a bunch of work and try to get it as done as quick as possible. It, it is. It's very challenging. Uh, and if you're lucky enough, and certainly at RCNE, we are, uh, you work with people that are very talented and very good at what they do. You know, um, nice. as, as difficult as this job is, without uh, people like Darren Hill that runs our service department and Anthony Verdugo, who is uh, one of our chief startup techs, you know, without those people, this job would be impossible. Right. Yeah. Uh, on some level, they're really the skilled uh, practitioners out there doing the hard work and we're just kind of coming behind them and documenting it. Yeah. Yep. Startups suck. I mean, as far as like just, any, it's just always, a, there's just so much stuff that needs to be done from even from the service side to the regulation side. Um, I did, I, I, I enjoyed it for a little bit, but then it just, you know, it, it, it I, I did it for about two years, did startups um and it eventually just wore me down like i just couldn't especially like the traveling and stuff are you having to do that do you got to go to these facilities whenever y'all have the new startup and and do you have you know uh, does that require you to do a lot of travel still yeah uh it does but luckily because we're based in the dfw metroplex most of the stuff we do on the build side side is within a comfortable driving distance oh nice However, we have a couple clients that we have relationships with in the DFW area, and if they want us to build something in Albuquerque, which we just did, or build something in Ohio, which we did a couple years ago, then we do that, or, or Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. So we go where the work is, but it, it's unlikely we're going to be cost competitive with some somebody that's yeah. based in Milwaukee, right, if you want to yeah. build your, your, your thing in Milwaukee. But if we already have a standing relationship and we know what your build 
needs to be like and you want to do a cookie cutter of the same three things you did in Texas, well, then, yeah, there, there we have the opportunity to be cost competitive because you know what you're getting. It's a known quantity. Yeah. We have the same thing. We've got customers that we will, we try. I mean, we've got a job that's going on right now in, in California, which we don't, you know, we don't have any techs out there as of yet, but you know, there, it, it's a customer relationship that we have and they, and they, we've earned that trust. So they know that when we come in, we're, you know, <clears throat> we're going to do the job correctly. So, yeah, I mean, there, it is, it, it makes it difficult sometimes bidding stuff because it is hard to be competitive if you're traveling that far. You know, I, I like to think that when a client calls you to work out of state, that it is because we've earned their trust. Yeah. But I think the more realistic answer, and, and it may be appropriate for, for you as well, is they know your failure modes. Like they know if you're going to screw up, how you're going to screw up. And they've already yeah. figured out how to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And on some, Let me on ask some level, that's, that's, that's kind of relationship building with everyone you work with and, you know, your, your children, your spouse or whatever. It, it's yeah. not that um, um, it's that they've learned to tolerate whatever failure modes you <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely um, yeah. There's less surprise there, right? <laughs> you know, and right. if they're if they're already built to to or I mean, I'm I definitely always like whenever we have anything like that that goes on at a job, like I'm, I'm a, a huge supporter of like getting all that stuff out front and, and, and trying to make it to where we don't make the same mistakes, you know, twice. Um, I think that that's, that is probably one of the things that if you can get that in a department, it helps it function 10 times better, you know, cause everybody's just looking for, instead of looking at pointing at fingers or pointing fingers at people, not that there shouldn't be accountability. Cause I've, I've been in that boat too, to where there was just no accountability. We weren't allowed to, you know, talk about what the mistakes were. Um, so yeah, and, and those companies that I worked for really didn't, didn't, ever learn anything from their jobs but it, it's imperative that it went as you're making mistakes you you recognize them and and uh and come up with a solution to not make them later on down the road yeah i have a, a sort of a um you're gonna hear loud noises occasionally sorry about that all good i have sort of a, a rule of thumb on that and that is I, I used to think that you know every single problem we have is something we ought to chase down to closure and try to solve and at least working with a design build contractor, what I realized is that that's, that's just not sustainable. Um, so for me, I view every one-off, assuming we're not talking about an injury here, I view every mistake uh, as a one-off. If we make the same mistake twice, now it's worth looking at from a process perspective, right? Yeah. What can we do yeah. about our process to not make that mistake again? And by God, if we, if we make the same mistake three times, uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not really unforgivable. But it just shows us that we haven't solved it on a process level, right? Yeah. But if I try to, if if we try to chase down every one-off weirdo mistake, uh, you end up killing yourself with creating processes around one in a million events. Yeah. You know, if, if I have um, if I have a, a a worker back their company truck into say uh, a gas pump. Yeah there's no need to create a training over that, right? There's no need to create a policy on backing yes. up, that, right? So it's like, okay, that's not, that's not something worth really looking too far down the, the, the pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we have a couple accidents like that, then, then really we need to chase down the root of 
why are we so inattentive? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is true. I've spent a lot of time. I mean, wow. I guess I could use that in my personal life as well. <laughs> Cause I, I think that there's, I think it is something that we all do or not all, but especially like when you're talking about self-improvement and stuff like that. Um, I, it, I guess you could kind of get bogged down by the stuff that, you know, that you're recognizing versus, you know, realizing that, Hey, maybe this is actually a one-off, um, you know, issue, uh, versus, you know, going after them all, if anything, that can make it definitely over overwhelming. And if I learned anything from your, your PSM class, it was definitely not to do that. Definitely make, if you're going to make regulations, it's gotta be sustainable. It's gotta be something that's not, you know, cause you can, and I believe that you even said this is that you could just create regulations for anything and everything and just have something that's near impossible to follow. Yeah. You can grind everything to a halt. Right. And, and, and yeah. every rule or, or even like you're talking about there for personal improvement, every rule of thumb you have at the extremes fails. Right. So you have to realize that, that your policies and procedures are, are for the middle, like say 95% of all possibilities, right? You, create a hot work permit program that works in most situations because one that works in most situations can be elegant. It can be understood. It can be trained on. It can be adhered to one that works in 100% is a 30,000 page message. It's so complex. No one can follow it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And we definitely do not want to be, because no matter what, once we document the process at that point, then we're held accountable to that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, the, the joke I was using PSM classes is if for some reason you write in your oil draining procedure that the personal protective equipment requirements include a pink tiara, then that's what you have to have your operators wearing on top of their APR. You know, yeah. you're silly enough to write it as a requirement. Huh? A more uh, sensible, less humorous, perhaps, one is uh, what we normally refer to as daily walkthroughs. Well, look, the the ragged gap for for walkthroughs is the old B109, B110 thing was 24 to 72 hours. I think in IAR6, you could probably stretch it out a little bit depending on how you look at it. But if the ragged gap says to do it every 24 hours and you say you're going to do it every eight, then come hell, high water, Kwanzaa or whatever, you, you have to do it every eight, right? Yeah, yeah. So it makes more sense for you to say, well, look, the ragged gap says every, you know, one to three days, and that's our goal. We're going to do it every one to three days. And then you can internally have a, hey, we prefer to do it every shift. But if, if you document it as we do it every eight hours, well, then that's what you have to do. So don't write yourself into a corner, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think that that's something that that's probably some, some of the larger companies that I've seen out there typically do that. And, and a lot of it is based off of, um, you know, inexperience. Like I've, I, I had a, a employer that I worked for one time in the past, they wanted us to write an MOC for anything and everything. If we changed out, even if it was like in kind, um, if we had to report anything, they wanted us to report it in the MOC. Like it was completely taken out of context, like what, like outside of what the MOCs are supposed to be. Like we used it as a a report to communicate between us and corporate. Right. So, So, and, and I was, I was, I was against that 
you know, just for the fact that I was like, man, you know, we're not, that, that's not, that wasn't the, that's not the intention behind the, the MOC. And we're just adding a bunch of extra stuff that we really don't, you know, that wasn't sustainable. And I felt like it was going to be something that, you know, we would get, I can't remember even what the exact situation was, but, um, you know, there, we, there's a lot of companies that I've worked for that have, that have, um, or not that I've worked like in the past anyways, that had some, some issues that way. And it was, you know, I, I, I was always a, a huge proponent of, of only writing down, you know, what was, what, what we could easily execute. Um, you know, and that, that's just something that, I mean, I don't know if there's the company still doing stuff like that, but, um, and it really was after your class that I, I you know, I, I came back with enough information to be able to, you know, to defend myself at that point. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things we really stress in that class is that your policies have to work in the real world, right? And if they don't work in the real world, they're 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 worse than not having a policy at all. Yeah, I know that most people go to a PSM class for compliance, and, and I get that, and I understand that. But if you make compliance your goal, you are not going to get what you need out of process safety. I mean, compliance should be a byproduct of of your process safety program. It should not be the goal. Yeah. What What do you get? Can you give an example of that? What do you mean? Like, shouldn't be the goal? Well, you you just gave one actually in your MOC process, right? So here, what's the fundamental reason for a management of change? The fundamental reason for a management of change is we want to be able to anticipate the possible safety effects of the thing we're going to do before we do it. Yeah. Right. That's the purpose. And anything you do that aligns with that is a good MOC, right? Yeah. Now, as part of that, you will probably end up with a written report to prove that you did that forward-looking thought, right? Yeah. What happens is the corporation finds that that written report serves a different need for them, which was communication about the change, right? Yeah. All right. And now that form has replaced the original function. Now it's just about communication, not about anticipating safety effects or forward-looking. Yeah, that makes sense. Huh. And, so and let me ask you, we make people fill out the form without ever telling them what the reason for it is. And therefore, they don't realize that they're drifting away from the yeah. reason it's there. I think that that's a massive issue. Um, well, you know, not knowing the why behind a lot of the things that we do. Right. And, and that's and, and you, you, you know, I mean, it's been years since you took it. And obviously we do it slightly different now, but. The, one of the main focuses of that class is basically making sure that everyone in there, everyone goes there to understand what does the law say about MOC, right? Or incident investigation or whatever. And we will absolutely cover that. But the value of that class has nothing to do with that because anyone of reasonable competence can read the law and the CCPS books and figure that out all by themselves. Yeah. What we focus on is stories about the why so that you understand the reason that regulation exists and then the normal behaviors you would expect to be compliant. But if, if you always know, if you don't know why it is your mom says, don't put your hand on the stove, you're gonna put your hand on the stove. And then when you burn yourself, you now know, right? Yeah. In process safety, we're trying to give you enough information so that you don't feel the need to put your hand on the damp burner. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. So let me ask you this. If you could get like anything PSM related across to a customer, what would that be? So I think the biggest failing and in, in, in you can see people put in just stupid amounts of work and not really get any forward moment or movement or traction. Uh, it's to remember that process safety starts with the word process. Okay. And to really take that to heart. And what we mean by that is if you go, the example I, I often use is if you go up on a roof and you see a rusted valve, everyone who is in a maintenance department or, or works with a maintenance department knows that one of the things we need to do is address that particular rusted valve, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer. Process safety is when you say, wait a minute, don't I have a process in place that should have stopped this from rusting? And then you say, shouldn't that process have addressed this valve and all the other valves in the same situation? Because if okay. you follow down that rabbit hole, what you find out is instead of addressing this one rusted valve, you solve the problem for all the valves in your system in the same position, right? That are subject to the same threat of rust. And if you only react to the moment, then you have to react to every moment, right? You have to wait till the next one fails and the next one fails yeah. and the next one fails. And you're in a reactive mode yeah. rather than in a planning mode. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I, I know that that sounds really simple, but if, if you really think of the implications, it's it, it, it's quite powerful. Um, you can even do this in, uh, let's say that you are the recipient of a, a five-year mechanical integrity audit. I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with these. I don't know if your company oh, provides yeah. them. Yep. Okay, so it's there's lots of different ways to do these. There's not a lot of ragged gap around them, and different people report things in different ways. But let's say yes. that you're you're the unlook unlucky recipient of a report at your facility, and you have spread across sixty pieces of equipment, eleven hundred recommendations on labeling and valve tagging. Wow. Yeah. The reality is it will take you longer to document the closure of those 1100 items than it will to actually in the real world fix them. Yeah. Right. That, and that's yeah. me. That's a breakdown of process safety. That doesn't yeah. make sense. We shouldn't be adding so much bureaucracy to this, right? We should be getting value when we add bureaucracy and documentation. Yeah. So the traditional way of dealing with that, Josh would be that you would create 1100 free and work orders, right? Yeah, and they would assign them to your techs, and over time, you would close out eleven hundred work orders. I would handle it a different way. I would say, look, this problem of missing valve tags and this problem of missing labels—it seems like the kind of thing that's going to come back, right? So, if we devote ourselves to working weekends for the next month and a half, and we solve these problems, it's very likely by the time we're done, we'll have new ones we don't know about. New missing tags, new missing labels, right? And certainly a year from now, we'll have missing tags and labels. So it seems to me this needs to be viewed more of as a process than an event, right? So how I would do it, and, and people will argue with me, but I'm telling you it's effective, is instead I would say, wait a minute. We go to these units at least once a year, right? Every unit has at least an annual check. Let's add to every work order that we issue for refrigeration equipment, every single one, an explicit check 
for does it have proper labeling and does it have proper valve tax? And that way, every single time someone goes to the unit, they're looking for those things. And I yeah. know that every unit gets at least one of these a year. So now instead of having 1,100 closures, I have one closure that says over the course of the next year, this problem will be solved. Oh, so and you're saying that as the solution. That is, yeah, but it's not just yes. a solution to those 1,100 items. It's a solution yeah. to those 1,100 items and their recurrence. Yeah. Right. And, and here's something even more important. It transfers the kind of internal responsibility of who's responsible for identifying missing tags and labels from some third party contractor to your operating staff. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I've actually had that's that's something that I wouldn't say it's common, but I do see that like on annuals and, I, and it's actually in our annuals for, you know, we have customers that have PM contracts. Um, so it, that, that, that's something that we do put in our annuals on, on evaporators, but yeah, I mean, I wonder, I mean, you're totally right. I've had, I can't tell you how many MIs I've, I've looked at as they came back and like, there was, there really should be a standard when it comes to what, like what we actually are supposed to be looking at, because I've seen a lot of people just put some pretty crazy crap in them. Like the, like the end of a bell housing on a frick um, like on the oil filter, they said that it wasn't lined up right. Like, and that's, this is just an example, but you know, it, it, it really would help to probably have some clarification on, on what, what we need to be looking at during an MI inspection, you know, for, for whoever we may be doing it for. So we have a standard that we use that's based off of our, uh, our annual, ITPMRs. So for us, ITPMRs is inspection, test, and preventative maintenance reports. We we created these kind of standardized work orders based off IR6 and other industry experience. And then there's an annual one for that. And we use that annual when we do five-year MIs. Hmm. So y'all have a, a uh, it, now, is that your regular, that's like what you would put into a service contract and then that's what y'all base it off of? Well, a service contract would be different than the five-year MI. Service contract would be based off the ITPMRs. Oh, okay. All right. So, and yeah, that's what I mean. Like if it's, so if the, but the, in, in the, in the, what, I can't remember what you called them, ITPMRs? Yeah, inspector like, test, preventative maintenance or records or reports. Oh, okay. All right. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Um there, man, that's so crazy. Uh, it's it's funny whenever you get to talking to somebody that's an expert in PSM, and then you can just start rolling through your head about all the different you know things that you've seen out there. There, there really is nothing. There, there's no, there's nothing really in common with any MI that I've ever seen. You know, they all just write up different stuff, and right. you know, it's really all based on even the the guy that's doing the inspection. You know, based on what he knows, which. There's there. I'm sure that there's guys out there that are that are underqualified actually doing MIs. For for us, when we provide them, because there isn't much of a rag gap, we got to set our own standard for it. And, and for us, we're really we're really looking at two things. One, on the mechanical integrity side, is is any of this being missed? Right? Are you just not catching this is rusting or this insulation's failed or, or, or whatever. These valves don't look like they've ever been exercised or things like that. So the first one is obviously the mechanical and integrity end of a mechanical integrity. Um, 
the other issue, which we add on to it because we're there anyway, and it tends to be useful, is sort of a quick ragagap check. Uh, so uh, for the relief system, for example, uh, are the terminations directed upwards, right? Are, or directed away from personnel? Are they seven and a quarter feet off the roof surface and things like that? So we look for some obvious ones just because we're there. And even though that's not an MI issue, um, they're often cited in OSHA under 1910-119-J5 as mechan mechanical integrity deficiencies. Because when you and I think of deficiencies, we think of, oh, that's rusted, right? Or, oh, that gauge is broke. Yeah. But uh, J5 is about it not fitting the requirements that you've established back in process safety information. And if you've declared, say, IR2 as your ragagat back in process safety information, and trust me, you did. Um, and it says that relief terminations have to be directed upwards and away from personnel, then not having that can can be cited not only in process safety information, but it can be cited under J5. Mm. In fact, that's usually where they prefer to cite it is under J5. Wow. So so let me ask you this. What's the like what would be the biggest opportunity for like most P PSM practitioners to improve that you've seen? I'll enlarge your question a little bit. What's the biggest opportunity in the world everywhere? And that is closing feedback loops. Everywhere you see a failure in a process, whether it's getting on a plane, right, and going from place A to place B, or ordering McDonald's at a drive-thru, or getting operator training correctly, when you see a break when you see bad results, what you have is a broken feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. You own a mirror in your home, and when you overeat, you will over time realize you are getting bigger, right? Yeah. It's a very obvious feedback loop, and at some point, you're going to take notice of it. Yeah. If, if you overeating made some dude on the other side of the world fat instead of you... <laughs> You don't have the feedback loop, so you'll continue doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. And what we tend to see is that inside, uh, moving back to, to process safety of plants, where you see broken things, where, where you go up on the roof and you see those rusted valves, uh, the reason that they're rusted is because there is no feedback loop to make it someone's problem that they're rusted. Yeah. Right. If you yep. go to a plant, uh, an example we often use in class is if uh, I'm walking uh, through a facility and I see some, uh, some broken racking and I go back to the maintenance shop and there's four people at the back of the maintenance shop and I just look at all four of them and I say, hey, here's a broken rack over at this location. I need you guys to fix it. And I come back the next day and it's not fixed. Who do I blame? Which one of those four people? Because in reality, they have plausible deniability. Every one of them is going to say they thought the other guy was doing it or whatever. Yeah. But if I went to one of those four people and said, you know, let's say his name is Gary. Gary, this rack is messed up. I need you to deal with it. I know exactly who to blame if tomorrow that rack isn't fixed. Yeah. Right. And I don't care if Gary fixed it. I don't care if Gary had Bill fix it. I don't care if Gary hired a contractor to fix it. I don't care how it got fixed. I just know that Gary's responsible for fixing it. So is that kind of the point is that you have to, you've got to assign someone? 
So like if in, you're yeah, in the example I gave you earlier, where we add to every work order, check for labels and tags, right? Yeah. Let's say we go and audit a plant and we're up on the roof and we find a bunch of missing labels and they're using our ITPMR system. We need to go look at those work orders, right? Because if yeah. those work orders had the operator not check that the tags and labels were good, we know where the problem lies. Yeah. Right now, we, yeah. we don't know why the problem lies with that operator. It could yeah. be that they're not trained. It could be that they have different expectations of what rust is or isn't. But yeah. whatever that is, we know who, where to solve that problem. Right. Yeah. If, yeah. however, we look at those documents and he has flagged religiously over the last year that they need labels and tags and it went to the maintenance supervisor and the maintenance supervisor did nothing. Now we're not throwing flack at that operator. We're throwing yeah. it at the maintenance supervisor because we know that's where the problem lies. Yeah. And it could be that that guy has emails going up the corporate chain asking for approval to buy tags and labels. And yeah. corporates told him, refused to give him the PO. And now yeah. we know where the problem lies. Yeah. But unless you set up your system so that you have you've removed plausible deniability and that everyone knows where the responsibility lies and therefore where the process failed, you haven't closed that loop. Yeah. Wow. That makes total sense. Yeah. It's, it's the most important thing you can do it everywhere you see problems. It's where the loop is either not closed or even worse misdirected. Right. So it used to be, you know, this is working for a contractor. It used to be whenever you visit a client, you would walk in the front of the building and you would meet some secretary and he or she would run you through a process and then get you to the appropriate person, right? Yep. Okay, that's a cost for the company. What they did instead in almost every place you go now is they've replaced that person with a tablet. Yeah. And now that's you have true. to manually type in on this stupid little touch keypad your name and your email address and all the rest of this nonsense. <laughs> And then try to figure out which one of these people it's supposed to call. What they've done is they've outsourced the frustration and cost of that secretary to you. Yeah. Right? And if yeah. that thing doesn't work well, they don't get the feedback as if they had to deal with it, which means it's likely to be an awful process. Yeah. The it's reason funny. It seems cable, to work. Yeah. The, the reason your cable company sucks is because what are you going to do? Go with the alternative cable company? No, you yeah. don't even have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. You, I mean, there, there's not that whole, like feeling the pain to learn, like, you know, they're like, or, or you don't, uh, you know, if you're, if uh, it's like rats, you know, the same thing with rats that are running through a maze, whenever they do the maze, right, they get a drop of uh, sugar water. And then whenever they don't, they, you know, they get zapped, but without feeling that pain, there's no course of correction. Well, I, I think the other thing too, with, with the, the best thing they can do or the most important thing they can understand is, look, process safety is something you can't avoid. It's, 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 a, it's a legal requirement, right? Yeah. yeah. So you're going to pay a price for it. The question in front of you is, do you want to get something for that price or not? Yeah. The only thing you want for your process safety costs to be compliance with some obscure OSHA and EPA regulation, or do you want to actually improve your damn process? Yeah. Because if you can use process safety correctly, and, and I like to view it as process safety on some level is the start of a process improvement program. The first yeah. thing you do in process improvement is standardize your process. That's exactly what process safety does. Mm -hmm. 
once you standardize it, you can improve it. So if you think about it, look, I have to pay this price anyway to get this OSHA and EPA program. Well, yeah. let's get some damn value out of the price I'm paying. Let's yeah. use it as the basis for a process improvement strategy. Yeah. It's so funny because most people out there are trying to avoid, they, they treat PSM like something they're trying to avoid, like to a certain extent, like they don't, um, you know, it, it's just like with everybody trying to stay under the 10,000 pounds and one, and, and really that's, you know, I, I've, I tell everybody that I meet that it doesn't matter if you're under that 10,000 pounds or not, you're, you know, you're still bound by the general duty clause. So you've, you know, you're there, there's, if you're, equipment isn't safe they're going to find a you know they'll find a way to yeah I, I got so sick of that conversation that i uh created a blog post about the minuscule differences between general duty and, and psm rmp and then now i actually have a pdf white paper so that when someone calls me about that i just get their email address and send them that white paper it's like if you read those three pages and still have questions get back to me <laughs> is this white paper available to everybody oh, or is that I mean, like on your tau compliance or Damn, no, it would be on RC Chill. Let me see if it's there. Oh, oh, oh okay. Well, I don't want you to have you know, to share it. Isn't, I should probably add it there, and then that's one less, one less conversation. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. I'm sure that there's probably people that have been going to that because I believe we we brought your website up last time, didn't we? So I have a October 11th, 2021 post that says ammonia process safety below 10,000 pounds. Yeah. And it does indeed link to that PDF. Nice. Maybe you can send, shoot me the link after the, um, that's done and I'll make sure to put it in the podcast notes so that people can have a, a quick a access to it. Because I I think that, especially in the service industry, we should familiarize our, our at least to the point to where we can speak to that because that is the number one thing that most customers that are, are trying to avoid the PSM program. That, you know, they... That's the first thing, you know, that they cite um, is that we're we're under ten thousand pounds. That you know that that stuff doesn't, um, you know, we're not required to do it. And and so, you know, I I I need uh, probably a better leg to stand on when it comes to being able to argue that. I mean, I do tell them, but I don't know the ins the ins and outs of it. Right. Yeah, I texted you the link. Uh, nice. You can look at it at your, at your leisure there. It, it reminds me of something, though, that I often talk about when we get to emergency action plans in the PSM class. And I'm famous for saying emergency action plan is my least favorite element because yeah. the only time it's ever useful is if you've failed up all the other elements of PSM, right? Yeah. I'm not yeah. saying it doesn't have value. It's just that I don't like to spend a lot of my time there because I, I prefer avoiding the emergency of it all possible. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things we always counsel in that is you should develop a relationship with your, your fire department, right? Yeah. With, with your with your local responders and mm -hmm. people will push back on that. And, and my response to that is always you are going to develop a relationship with the local police and the local firefighters. If you choose to do it now when you have time and can be careful about that relationship or if you choose to try to develop it during the fire or release, you're going to develop a relationship. Yeah. You know, you have the opportunity to do it in a calm and collected manner. Or you can just yeah. you know, go all in and try to do it during the release. But trust yeah. me, you'll wish you'd done it when you had time. Yeah.
and some of the smoothest operating plants that I've ever been in, at least that have had good response, all had great relationships with the, um, with the fire local fire department or local hazmat team, you know, whichever some, some of them don't have hazmat teams anywhere close. Like and some of them aren't interested, but if you're right, if you can get, it's the having a good relationship with that fire chief or, you know, that for water is the difference between, them standing in front of the news camera saying they had no idea what was going on. Yes. It was a complete disaster. And, and them saying, oh, well, we've worked with these people before. We've even drilled with them and everything went the way we thought it would. These are good guys. Um, yeah. Who would prefer that to be the the, the TV? Yeah. Yeah, I were I started at Publix in in Lakeland um, when I was a kid, and that was the that that's what always impressed. Like they do everything in house, and they even have a hazmat response team with a trailer with all the oxygen tanks, and they they don't they don't do rescue, but they do allow them to go in and sh- like to fully dress out and go you know shut off whatever leak or whatever could possibly stop the leak. Um, but we trained every year with with the fire department when we got out there we were you know all of our meters got tested all of our oxygen tanks got um filled up they, they, i mean we had like a great working relationship so every, every time these guys have had a release that it's you know it's like anything you've got to practice for you know if, if you're into guns and stuff like that like you need to go out there and shoot your gun and you know make sure that it's operating correctly um, and you know, God forbid, if anything ever does happen, you know, you, you've got the training to be able to do it. And it's the same thing along the lines with handling releases that uh, there was two, um, releases that happened there. One was a, one of them, um, CK, what is it? CK two valve, the hot gas, um, uh, the uh, hot gas operating valve. You know, what I'm talking about the one that slams down the, um, the you piston in the valve. Refer to it as a suction stop. Yeah, well, it'll be a, it'll be just a suction control valve. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, whenever it goes into defrost, it would shut off. Or you know, some of our hot gas to open, hot gas to close. I can't remember which one is which, but um, one of those pistons had knocked the bottom out of the out of a suction valve, and so it wasn't very long. We we started getting calls from people smelling ammonia, um, and and then w- once we got up on the roof and figured out what happened, but the the we had also had a channel that that had you know that they have their own hazmat department just for the public's facility and there there's an open they're on the refrigeration channel so anytime they hear anything they just automatically come over so that that working relationship definitely makes a massive difference when it comes to the response of your of any kind of leak or anything at your facility it makes it go far more smoother and we knew exactly what to do you know we knew how to stat you know Everybody, I can't even remember what the rules are. It was, it's been so long, but we established all the, what is it called? Like the, there's a, like site commander and. Oh, you're, I can't. yeah, you're, you're man, basically your management system, but yeah, they have a special yeah. board. I've been out of it so long. It's been 10 years since I've been a member of that, but. Yeah, I, yeah, I, same here. <laughs> I remember that my great frustration with those was always, uh, whenever they say this phrase in, in training, well, in a real situation, we'd do it this way. Well, no, no, no. In a real situation, if we do X, Y, and Z, then in our training, we should do X, Y, and Z. Yes. Because a step while we're suiting up in training saying, well, in a real situation, you'd put your Nomex on now. Yeah. I'm not going to remember that in a real situation. So you yeah. best put have us put Nomex on now, and mm-hmm. then we have it in our muscle memory that that's what comes next. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's exactly how it was. I mean, we knew we responded qu quickly, or those guys at Publix respond quickly because they train it several times a year. I, I, I'm a real, we don't want to get into it in this, but I'm a real stickler for for those uh, hazard response teams. Uh, I'm, I'm really against them because most people won't put the time and effort to do them right. Yeah. And if you're not going to do them right, they're, they're really like assisted suicide teams. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> if, it, if it takes 40 minutes for your team to assemble and the yeah. reason you have that team is so you can address a liquid leak, yeah. most that most liquid leaks will empty your entire system in half that time. Yeah. Right. So yeah. there was no point in your team then, was there? No. Yeah. You're exactly but right. We have a closed loop refrigeration system. By God, we don't have to go to the leak to stop the leak. There are other yeah. valves. Yeah. And then yeah, the, most, certainly. the most elegant uh, emergency action plan I've ever seen addressing was really emergency response on some level, if you think of it, was yeah. that I won't name them because I don't have their permission to talk about them, but um, their little sausage plant in the middle of nowhere, they had no help. So they had to create their own thing, which is often where you find both yes. the best and the worst uh, execution you'll ever find. And they had this binder, dude. And if you said the leak was at EC2, you would go to the EC2 tab and open the binder. It had a picture of the unit and it listed, here's the valves that are primary. So if you could get to those valves, you should close those valves. Yes. And if you couldn't get to those valves, it had a picture of the roof and it showed you where the secondary valves were. Wow. And what that meant was you didn't need to suit up to stop the leak there. Yes. Right. If you couldn't get yeah. to the primaries, you got to the secondaries and then you knew how much pipe was involved and you could sit there calmly and calculate how much ammonia you lost. Yep. No one's thrown into the danger zone. Right. No one is, has to get in their fancy suits and SCBAs. Yeah. So what I tell people that want to be on ammonia hazmat teams most of the time is if you want to be a hero, there are plenty of charities in your community that could use one. Nice. Right. So go yeah. do that. You know, go help yeah. underprivileged children. Go uh, go solicit funds for March of Dimes. Uh, <laughs> go to, you know, help a woman's shelter. I mean, but yeah. there are desperate needs without us creating new ways to solve problems. Yeah. I mean, I've never outside of um, the, that being a part of that hazmat team, I've never really seen anybody that put that kind of effort into it. And, you know, especially now, like training is the number one in all aspects of refrigeration. It doesn't matter if it's technical training or PSM training. Um, but, the, you know, to me, that's probably one of the most important factors in, you know, how, how well the facility is going to be taken care of. So uh, I, I, I think that training is absolutely necessary, um, again, in all of it, technical and uh, and uh Oh, what is it called? Um, regulations, but that you know we we, we have to pr you know practice that stuff. We have to constantly have training um, to to make it muscle memory. Yeah, I'm not a. Uh, I, I would say that I'm I'm not a huge fan of of hazmat teams anyway. Some people do do it right, um, but more you know more often it's it's definitely not done right. I, I think we're on the same page, but just to restate that so no one gets the wrong impression. I'm a huge fan of hazmat teams, but professional yeah. hazmat teams, yeah. right? Professional hazmat teams where that's their full-time job and they can train as is necessary for that level of danger. Yeah. 
just like I'm a huge fan. I used to be a volunteer firefighter. I'm a huge fan of professional firefighters, but that's really not a part-time job. Yeah. Right. You, yeah, you no kidding. the level of tra- of training and expertise commensurate with the risk. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I know that you get a lot of phone calls. Um, anything happen here recently that would be considered interesting or something you can talk about? Uh, well, there's limited by something I can talk about. That really brings it down because most of the times I, I can't <laughs> talk about it. Um, yeah. I can talk about one that I just find frustrating for the person that called and for myself, which is people are always calling me about PSM software. Huh. And I'm open to the idea that this won't always be my experience. But as of now, 12 years of auditing programs with PSM software, I yeah. have yet to find a program that was made better with PSM software. Like them versus going in and just building the program from scratch. Like the, you're talking about the cookie cutter. Cause I, I think I know, I, I know a couple of customers that do have the, the um, PSM software and it's and they're, it's rather difficult to use. At least the ones that I've used. They're all well, they're all less. They're all suboptimal, right? But yeah. here, here's the point. The first question I normally have with people that want to have PSM software is, what problem are you trying to solve, right? What mm-hmm. is what does it look like on the other end? I mean, one of the best things I ever did for my PSM classes was, you'll note that I start on the first day by asking everyone what success looks like for them when they leave here four days later. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do the same thing with this PSM software conversation. Okay. Let's assume you got you. I give you a recommendation. You install it and you use it. Uh, those are all big assumptions, but let's yeah. assume that that's true. What does success look like for you at the other end? What problem are you solving? And if your answer is compliance, well, right now I can tell you, you're going to be disappointed because compliance isn't driven by software. Yeah. Compliance isn't driven by software anymore then a computerized maintenance management system drives maintenance. Yeah. Now, if you're going to yeah. use it just as a scheduler, well, then by God, go to town. But there, are, you could use Outlook for that. You could use Google Calendar for that. You could yeah. use your existing CMMS for that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if, if you're going to use it to get accountability, well, it's possible you'll get some of that from the software if it's properly executed. But also yeah. remember that that software is just as dumb as every other piece of software. Yeah. Right. And, and and I won't criticize their software here. I'll just ask you, are you familiar with the ISN network? I am. Yes. OK. So for those of uh, for the people that are listening and aren't aware of it, it's a group that qualifies contractors. So let's say mm-hmm. you're an end user and you say, I don't want to worry about whether or not they have their insurance or the right safety programs. I'll pay ISN to do that for me. And then unbeknownst to them, ISN then makes us as a contractor pay them as well. So they're yeah. it's kind of like the mafia, except that they're getting it from both sides, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the people that work at these organizations, now I would like to point out because we have to deal with ISM that I'm not talking about them anymore. Um, <laughs> don't, aren't, let's say experts in their fields, right? Yeah. And I have friends, you know, so I, so you'll get an email that says, oh, well, you need this program, right? You need to meet this OSHA requirement. And I have friends that have uploaded PDFs of Chinese takeout menus and had it approved, 
right? Because they're just looking for, did something show up? Did it check the box? What? Well, you will have the same problem with software. So the software is stupid, just like all other software. And let's imagine you created a digital MOC form and the MOC form asks a question and it says, did you update the inventory calculation? And you check the box, yes. And let's say it's really good software and it says, well, you have to send me the new one. So you uplayer a file. The software doesn't know if the file's yeah. right. It doesn't know if it reflects the change. It doesn't know if the math and adds up. Yeah. Right? It can't know yeah. that. So yeah. what does know that? The qualified person you're supposed to be supervising that damn thing to begin with. So the yeah. software on some level can be a can be useful, but on most levels, it gives people a false sense that things are progressing. Yeah. And even so, worse. Even worse, if you think about it. Now, look, most people don't have the setup I have. I have four 30-inch monitors here in, in my pocket, right? Yeah. And I wish I had room for two more, but my head just can't swivel enough, right? <laughs> Imagine trying to look through your PSM program. And those that are listening, especially those that are listening at work, look at the size of your PSM program. Imagine trying to look at it and get situational awareness if you could only look at it one page at a time. Yeah. And that's what PSM software forces you to do. You lose that situational awareness. It'd be yeah. no different than if you had a guy up on the roof sharing his camera with you out of his smartphone and you're yeah. remote and you're trying to get situational awareness about what's happening on the roof just from that picture. Yeah. That's so funny. And most people do whenever they get this program, that's considered their PSM program. They don't they don't have any they don't question anything that goes in or out of it. Um, I mean, and I'm just thinking, you know, the people that I've known that use some of this stuff, um, you're exactly right. So it, so someone needs to be, even if you're using something like that, then someone needs to be paying pretty close attention to what goes in it, making sure that it is um, the correct information and the information that's being asked for. So it, uh, so I see what you're saying. It still takes quite a bit of oversight. Um, it it you know, can be a management tool if you get good, the good stuff, because there are better versions of the software than others. Right. And they're not cheap. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. We, we have clients uh, that use a particular brand that I I don't want to say what it is, but, Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, Scott, my colleague is actually a, Oh, a a vendor certified, you know, implementer of that software. Yeah. Um, We have clients that have success with it, but they have success with it as a tool. Yeah. Right. So let's say you have some sort of half-assed tech on your staff, right? Mm-hmm. You don't make that tech a better tech by buying him, buying him a better quality refrigeration wrench. Yeah. Right. The reality is he needs skills, right? Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with the software. The software can't compensate for a lack of skilled personnel. It can't yeah. compensate for a bad program. So yeah. to sum it all up, Software won't solve your problems, but if you fundamentally already solved your problems and just need help managing it, software can help. Yeah. So do you think that that's something that might be might change in the future? Like I know that you mentioned that, that at least up to this point of uh, for what you've seen. But do you think like if if Brian got a hair up his ass, wanted to go and create his own, do you think it's possible to create something that would be useful to that level 
maybe and maybe when general artificial intelligence gets to a certain point i honestly yeah. think we cover about 90 percent of this with gai in probably 10 years yeah um but now no um what you can do is do is, is something in the middle so i'll i'll, I'll tell you of a of an arrangement we have the the, the client attempts to be a solo practitioner with their facilities right so just yeah. each one of their little facilities tries to do the best they can mm -hmm. and then uh i told you about how i think it's important to have a feedback feedback loop right yep one of the things we are adamant about if we do a compliance audit with you or we do a pha or you know a psm class or whatever that is is that you start using your psm team to validate all the individual decisions right so yeah. Let's say that, Josh, you were in charge of contractor qualifications and you mm -hmm. qualified two contractors last month. You would bring that paperwork to the team at the monthly meeting and then we would rip it apart, brother. Hmm. We would try to find every hole in that documentation. We would yeah. try to second guess every decision you made. This does a couple of things. One, it finds your errors, right? Yeah. And two, it gets you comfortable with defending your decision, mm -hmm. right? Because yep. if you have to defend that in front of OSHA or EPA, believe me, it's a lot smoother the second time around. Yeah, that right? makes sense. So since yeah. you've already gone through it, you already have the answers. You've got that cool comfort, you know, that cool yeah. collected version of you. Yep. And the other thing is, is it builds competence in everyone in the room about that element. Yeah. Right? And over yeah. time, that's game changing. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you do that for every part of that program, over time, that internal oversight becomes amazing. However, you have a problem. If the whole group of your facilities is very low skilled, they're not terribly effective in that internal sort of second guessing. Right. Yeah. So for for some organizations, what they do is they can send us that paperwork. And then we can tear them up. We get them on the phone and go, what the hell were you thinking with this MOC? Or no, no, what, what, how is this box blank, right? Or how did yeah. you say you had to update the P&ID on sheet 1.3, but on 1.4, you said you didn't need to? Like, like how is that possible, right? Yeah. yeah. And then we're, we're building solo competence with that person, right? Yeah. But, and this is really useful in, with, the, with the modern younger people. We're building it in a way that we're not, we're not doing it in front of their peers. Right. They mm -hmm. don't have to see six people watch them fail. Yeah. Right. And then that mm -hmm. builds up their internal competence to where they're more likely to be able to help each other out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and in that instance, you can couple that with software, right? So instead of having yeah. to scan the P scan, the MOC and PDF it and email it to me, you can just give me access to your, your software and I can just look at the MOC and then we can look at it together, you know? Yeah, like yeah. Um, th there, are, there are things, there are ways you can use it that it's valuable. But, yeah. you know, if, if you need uh, a 330 seconds wrench, having the best screwdriver in the world doesn't solve that problem. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's the truth. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see that, like, it, it, PSM is is almost like a, a living organism. Like it's just always going to take that that input. Um, you know, for, uh, like I I see the the programs being good for like organization, like being able to say, okay, well, this is where we keep all of our documentation. 
Um, but I, I can, I can, uh, it, it makes sense that you have to have someone there, um, you know, reviewing all the stuff and making sure that it is the correct documentation that's getting uploaded. Um, yeah, but, but you can do everything you just talked about. It's absolutely valuable. But you can do that with Google Drive. You can do that with yeah. iDrive, right? Yeah. You don't need, you, you can do that with physical binders on the wall. So software doesn't help you do that if you don't already know how to do that. And there no. I think is the real problem that we throw yeah. people in front of expensive software, but they don't have the basic competencies of how to organize, how to manage documents, how to handle uh, revisions and things like that. They don't have those baseline competencies because I'm not really sure what we're teaching them in school, but we're not teaching them that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and those, the software won't cover that up. Yeah. Yeah. Totally right. If, if people get in this thing and, and it's, we'll end on this concept. I've got some things coming up here, but people get in this con this idea that filling out that form, whether it's a paper form or whether it's on software, they get in this concept that filling out the form is doing the thing, right? So they'll say, yes. I filled out this MOC paperwork. So to them, that's, they completed the MOC. Yep. That's not true. Yeah. The MOC paperwork is how you document the hard thing. It's not doing the thing. Yeah. Right. Getting the hot yeah. work permit is not how you make sure that you don't burn the building down. All the work that goes into it is the thing that stops the building from burning down. The paper itself has no value other than to prove you did the thing. Yes. Same thing for line opening permits, incident investigations, all of it. If you think, and, and I catch people that, and, and I'm, um, I'm pretty rude about this, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> if I catch you coming to me and go, well, I did the I, I did the form, right? Yeah. If you view, and we'll go back to the very first thing we talked about with this, it's a process thing. If you view filling out the form as the hoop you have to jump through to do the thing, yeah. then process safety is not happening. Yeah. Process safety is where you justify yourself to your peers that this thing we're doing is correct. Now you can document that on a form, but you can't do it on a form, right? So the example, I always try to find the uh, the director of warehousing or the plant manager or whatever in a PSM class yeah, and, and isolate them and, and ask them in front of the whole group, you know, 20 or 30 people, would it be possible someone could follow you around and write down everything you did all day? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, right? Okay, if they did that for a month, could they maybe create a checklist that would be useful then to know if you did all the things you normally do in a day? And they're like, sure, yeah, you, you could easily take a lot of what I do and make it into checklists, you know? Mm -hmm. Could I just take some rando off the streets and could they do your job just by performing the checklist? And of course, the answer to that is no, right? Yes, yeah. Well, it's the same thing with filling out the damn MOC form. It's the same thing with incident investigation. It's the same thing with pre-startup safety review. It's the same thing with hot work, line opening. The form is not the function. Yes. Man, that man, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's a that's such a unique way to look at it too. Cause I do feel like most people think that, you know, that is the end of this is what they've got to do to do this job. And it's just something that they just have to get out of the way. And look, that's a cost. You have to go through those hoops because you're a covered process. Yeah. The only question before you is, are you going to get some damn value out of it? Yeah. And you get value yeah. out of it by making those check boxes true, not by just 
clicking them on the on the software or click or, or striking them with a pen, right? Yep. Well, damn, dude, that was just another hour of me getting my mind blown the whole time. Glad <laughs> I could help. Yeah, <laughs> I've got I've got a lot to uh, digest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, dude, I always appreciate you coming on. There's just so much. You've just got so much knowledge, man. I think this is good stuff for for the the listeners to hear. You know, that's probably one of the outside of technical ability that you know. I think that everybody has PSM looming looming over their head. You know, in some way. So you know, that I I. Now that I'm getting a little bit older, I, I, especially after having conversations with you, I know that I'm definitely taking, you know, my role in, in PSM much more serious than, than, than what I used to. Um, it, it's it, it, like, kind of like what I said, it's just kind of a living organism that you just kind of got to keep working on. Well, the, the whole idea that we want to look at the potential downfalls of, of what we're planning on doing. We want to mm-hmm. document what we're planning on doing. Let's start there. Then we want to, you know, look at the potential downfalls and the and the ways that can fall apart. And then we want to put plans in place to make sure it doesn't happen. I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely true for an ammonia refrigeration system, but it's probably yeah. true for your marriage and for your children and for yeah. your home and for your retirement. And yeah. it, it's probably just broadly true, dude. And yeah. um, some of us are lucky enough that we essentially have a job that allows us to professionally 40, 50, 60 hours a week train to solve difficult problems. Um, then the question is, do we take those skills to our personal lives or not? Yeah, that that's true. There, I've kind of learned something similar, like patience in, in doing jujitsu or doing martial arts. You know, there's not, there's stuff that I, it's the same exact thing. Um, like, con- you know, controlling my emotions or, you know, if I, if someone goes to submit me or something like that, all of that stuff has, I think there's lessons in life like that, that you can apply to everything. Yeah. I'll just, I'll, I'll close with Marty Corbett's famous words. I, I use them almost every day. Wisdom is healed pain. And when you meet wise people realizing you're just meet, meeting people with a whole lot of pain. What is it? Wisdom is just Wisdom healed pain. Healed pain. Nice. So you need that grizzled old tech you have two ways of learning what he knows. You can listen and follow it, or you can go and make the same stupid mistakes. It's up to you. But if you're going to stay in this field, you will eventually learn those lessons. Whether you want to learn them from someone else or learn them through your firsthand scarring is up to you. Yeah. 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 Isn't that the truth? Well, Brian, I appreciate you come on coming on again, man. We're gonna have to do this again soon. You, I, you just like keep if you run into four or five different weird solutions or whatever that you can t- talk about. I, you know, uh, like I said, I'd love to do this once a month or something with you if you had the time. Sure, I have no personal life. Why not? <laughs> nice. All right, dude. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Have a good day, Brian. Take care, man. Bye. You too. See you. Nice. Um, I absolutely love talking, uh, to Brian. He's just a unique dude. Uh, well, you know, if there's, listen, if, if any of you guys want to come on, if you can hold a conversation, I'll have a conversation with anybody, 
you know it doesn't matter um you know hell you could just just drink this is what i tell people that get nervous just drink you about four beers right that's my limit i if you don't drink then i understand but have you i like two tall boys right before i'm about to record and then it just it, it goes smooth right so if you're a service tech i don't care what level you are you know somebody can learn something from any level if you're a lower lower level guy you'll be able to ask me questions and there's other lower level guys that are are listening same thing with with technical guys you know we all can learn something um and, and that's what this is about you know i like the bullshit aspect of it but um you know the the goal is that hopefully some of you guys are learning some of this stuff that i'm spewing all right guys well that's all the time we have today i will see you next week <laughs>